Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's Juneteenth, a day in history, the 155th anniversary of the last knell of slavery. So Juneteenth is what's called a portmanteau. It's a spliced word. Uh, And today we're also traveling back in time with author Michelle Cox and her historical novel, Murder Mystery, called A Lost a Child Lost, published by She Writes Press this spring. Welcome, Michelle. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, you're more than welcome, and we're happy to have you. But first, in case everyone doesn't know what Juneteenth is, when the Civil War ended in 1865, the Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox, Virginia, and enslaved people in Texas didn't learn about their freedom until June 19th, two years later, in 1867. On that day, uh, two and a half years after President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, Major General Gordon Granger of the Union Army arrived in Galveston, Texas, and issued General Order Number 3 that secured the Union's Army authority over Texas and stated, all slaves are free. So it was a time lag, uh, the kind of time lag we can't conceive of now while we broadcast and disseminate information all over inclusively and hopefully with uh, a lot of um, thought to to being inclusive, to being uh, scientific and, and honest and truthful. I, uh, I really want to cut right to this book, A Child Lost, because Michelle Cox, um, in this historical novel, addresses certain social injustices, but wrapped inside a murder mystery, and then, of course, a love story. So, Michelle, well done. It's, um, it, it, to me, it was a perfect, if you don't mind my saying it, it was a perfect form of escape. Uh, it was a, a great piece of um, romance, suspense, uh, and, and escape, uh, is a truly important function right now, I believe, in our world. It always was. The great pieces of art, from music to film and painting, all came out of daydreams and artists' fantasies, and you've provided a wonderful means of escape, and I congratulate you. Um, do you describe it that way yourself, uh, as, a, as a kind of form of escape? You know, um, thank, first of all, thank you for the lovely compliments. Um, yeah, I would. I mean, I, I don't think there's really anything wrong with that with that description, calling it an escape. And it, interestingly, um, I've been getting more and more letters from or emails from readers these days saying the exact same thing, that it was the, the escape they needed right now. And, um, you know, even before these troubling times, shall we say, um, 
You know, that's why I read a book, is I want to escape, and that's why I, I love reading historical fiction, is because I just, I want to escape, you know, my life or, or this, this reality and just, you know, be in a different place at some point. It's almost like being in a movie or something like that. So, no, I, I, I think it's a great description. And it gives us dimension. Um, it gives our minds. I mean, I think that we're so performance driven or we get influenced by this idea that we should always be like doing something. And the, <laughs> and, and, but, and so I think escape gets a bad rap. But the key sure. advantage of, of escape and daydreaming, as Freud pointed out, you can engage in a trial action, this is a quote, without any consequences. You can imagine yourself uh, ridiculing, ridiculing your teacher without really doing <laughs> it. Um, and, you know, it's important to realize events such as Einstein conjuring the theory of relativity. He did that while he was an office worker in Switzerland, and he was basically caught up in a daydream, a reverie. And I think that, you know, we discount the importance of escaping. uh, And it's also, you know, thinkers point out, it's also a way to hone our social skills, because long before computers, uh, daydreams served as the first virtual world where we could rehearse Mm -hmm. social situations, love affairs, um, adventures, emergencies, and conflicts without the risk or consequence. So it can be an an important form of creativity um, and one where, you know, as they said, we we get to rehearse life and, um, you know, imagine possible worlds. And there's a certain, you know, part of me that just wonders, well, what could be more important? So I guess um, I'm going to give uh, listeners uh, a bio because it, it describes you and your extensive, um, you know, repertoire in this genre. Oh. Michelle, Michelle Cox is the author of the multiple award-winning Henrietta and Inspector Howard series, as well as Novel Notes of Local Lore, a weekly blog dedicated to Chicago's forgotten residents. She suspects she may have lived once in the 1930s um, (laughs) or once lived in the 1930s and yet um, has not yet to rediscover the handy time machine and so has resorted to writing about the era as a way of getting herself back there. Coincidentally, her books have been praised by Kirkus, Library Journal, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and many others, and so she might be on to something. Unbeknownst to most, Michelle hoards board games and doesn't she doesn't have time to play and is not surprisingly addicted to period dramas and big band music, also Marmalade. <laughs> so, Michelle, um, you find yourself, I think, in a world where we are are escaping that um, Downton Abbey and The Crown and a lot of, you know, these series, Netflix series have taken us away uh, from our immediate world. And they're also, as I found with A Child Lost, highly instructive historically. So I, I I began to wonder, when did you begin to imagine and daydream these books? You know, that's a great question. Um, I, I probably, I started writing, like, you know, for the first time ever, really, um, 
in about 2012. Um, I came up with the idea for the series, though, um, more like 2014. And I, I, in a previous life, no, earlier, um, in the early 90s, I had worked at a nursing home and as a social service uh, director. And I, you know, was privy to... Uh, so many wonderful stories, um, which is where, you know, I get those stories from my blog. And um, I decided to write a book, not a series, um, and I thought that a mystery would sell. <laughs> Little do I know now, but um, if I'd known more about uh, the market back then, I might have chosen a different genre, but I thought mystery would be great. So I needed a jumping off point, and I... I took the story of a woman um, and who had this amazing life in the 30s and 40s in Chicago, and I took little bits of her story and, and created Henrietta out of her, mm-hmm. and then um, you know thought up a mystery and the inspector and, and how it would all go. But you know, midway through the book, I really love these characters, and I didn't want to let them go. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to turn this into a series. Um, which was a little bit tricky because I had to change some things because I uh, I didn't want to just end it um, where book one was going. I didn't want it to be about, you know, a, a, a cop in Chicago and his wife. I felt like that had been done before in the, the whole mob scene and all of that. So I just, you know, switched it a little bit and gave Clive a secret past. And he, like a gentleman, obliged. So uh-huh. that was the start of it. <laughs> Well, great. And you did allude in your biography to um, perhaps having had a previous life in the 1930s. Um, do, do you really do you really feel that? Do you really resonate with that? You know, I, I you know, honestly, it. I'm not really sure. I do. There's. I do feel an an amazing affinity to that era, to the 30s and 40s. I mean. It's not normal, I don't think, for a, a person in this day and age to put on, you know, Artie Shaw or Benny Goodman and actually have tears. There's <laughs> something about it that just moves me. Yes. And I I am able to write v- that era very easily. It does, I, yeah, of course I've done research, but I it doesn't take a lot of research. It's like I'm tapping into something. So, um I'm not sure. That's fascinating. Like you're channeling. Um, in, in case there's uh, not a lot of knowledge of the background, um, during the 1930s, I actually had to look into the culture myself. But, you know, it com- we're coming out of the Depression or it's during the Depression. Mm-hmm. Most people didn't have much money, and most, but most people did have radios, and listening to the radio was free. The popular broadcasts were those that distracted listeners from their everyday struggles. Comedy programs like Amos and Andy, soap operas and sporting events. So it is, again, escapism, the need to transport ourselves in order to take the time to process and make sense out of our lives. Swing music encouraged people to cast aside their troubles and dance and band leaders like Benny Goodman and Fletcher Henderson drew crowds of young people to ballrooms and dance halls all around the country. So even though money was tight, people kept going to the movies and musical screwball comedies and hard-boiled gangster pictures likewise offered audiences an escape 
from the grim realities of life during the 1930s. I really, I really wonder, you know, about this now because we're in the era of 24/7 news, and we focus so much on the on the negative of um, keeping ourselves informed and in this grim reality, where. You know, we, of course, do need to pay attention and we do need to be conscious socially. But, you know, you really, I think, draw a very good point that this kind of uh, diversion um, is one that draws attention to also the timelessness of social injustice. You witnessed it working in a nursing home, I'm sure, and then drew mm-hmm. out this very uh, important character Henrietta, who's quite complex, and I would say very mm-hmm. avant-garde, wouldn't you say? She was kind of a pioneer. She really was, and, um, you know, I did base her, as I said, on a, a, a real person, because sometimes I, I get a little bit of flack that she was was a little bit more advanced than you would expect a woman of the 30s to be, and that she's a hard character to write because you want her to be true to the time, but you want readers to be able to relate to her. And in, in truth, in reality, the woman that I based her on had a huge string of uh, jobs in the 30s and 40s in Chicago. She was a very, apparently a very, very voluptuous, beautiful woman. And even though, as you mentioned, it was the, the Great Depression and jobs were very hard to find, it was never hard for her probably because she was so beautiful, but she was working in jobs like, you know, an usherette or a burlesque girl or a waitress, but she was always losing her jobs because she was always being felt up and she would always slap the owner or the manager, whoever it was, and she instantly fired. So then she would go and get another job. But I think that one detail about this person is so significant because that would have been incredibly risky uh, during the, the Great Depression when people were lined up for jobs to stay true to herself and, uh, you know, not put up with it, which I think is, you know, very forward thinking. So sure. I think that that detail and a few others just gave me the, the, the idea or the inspiration to make her the character that she is. She came to life. Well, she is a sensualist, and, but, and she is a femme fatale. And in mm-hmm. the book, you know, we, we have a clear image of her as being attractive and also attracted to Clive. Um, but, yeah, she has a real solid sense about her um, in, and in terms of extending her care towards other members of the family once she marries into this very wealthy family. She marries, it's a very upwardly mobile um, kind of marriage, but it's a love match. She marries Inspector Clive. Um, so maybe we should give just a little bit of a summary of A Child Lost. Um, it begins, uh, this, uh, this summary begins, a spiritualist, an insane asylum, and a lost little girl. When Clive is anxious to distract a depressed Henrietta, he begs his Sergeant Davis for a case, uh, a private investigator case, and he's assigned to investigating a seemingly boring affair, a spiritualist woman, operating in an abandoned schoolhouse on the edge of town. She is suspected of robbing people of their valuables. And what begins as an open and shut case, of course, becomes more complicated when Henrietta 
much to Clive's dismay, begins to believe the spiritualist's strange ramblings. Meanwhile, Elsie begs Clive and Henrietta to help her and the object of her budding love, Gunther, uh, to locate the whereabouts of one Liesel Klinkhammer, the German woman Gunther has traveled to America to find, and the mother of the little girl, Anna, who's a darling character who he has brought along with him. And that search leads them to Dunning Asylum, where they discover some terrible truths about Liesel and where the child herself is mistakenly admitted to the asylum after an epileptic fit. So Clive and Henrietta return to Dunning to retrieve her, but Henrietta begins to suspect there's something darker happening, and she takes matters into her own hands with horrifying results. Um, There's a lot to unpack there. One is um, (laughs) the role of a spiritualist. So this is different than a psychic. I had to go back and find out the definition. So a spiritualist is one who believes, spiritualism believes that the, um, the voices of the dead can be heard through a medium. And they are transmitted to the live person, whereas a psychic is basically, you know, consumed with foretelling the future. Um, you you have this spiritualist, and she's got a lot of credibility, Madame Pavlovsky. I wondered how much <laughs> credence you felt um, towards her. How much? Pardon. Credence, credence um, that you oh, felt credence. towards. Yeah, that that you know she was ver- she was viable in this book. Everything she said was true, spot on, accurate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's an interesting character for sure. Um, uh, and I obviously I wanted to paint her that way as you know the sort of um, you know charlatan, but um, you know in a sort of Dickensian fashion, she. Uh, she turns out to actually have some, you know, some truth to her. And um, I, I, I'm hoping that the reader is left with a little bit of, you know, um, confusion or mystery at, at the end. Like, you know, is she real or isn't she? And hopefully mm-hmm. she will make a reappearance in, in subsequent books. Well, we do get a dangler right at the very end because <laughs> she, Sarah Gay, who who does her setup right with the with the crystal right. ball, and she admits to a little <laughs> bit of schlockism there that she you know has the ball glow and and um, but he says why did you release Clive and she mysteriously and cryptically says well oh but he'll be back so <laughs> we, we we find out that you know he's he's hooked um and and actually we're quite hooked um henrietta is this really i think brilliant um woman who does trust her instincts she returns to this asylum when she feels that everything is not quite right and they're trying to also retrieve this young girl, a child lost. So we have just about a moment. Um, when you talk about Anna, is that the child lost? And how would you characterize that as an entity in the book? Well, yes. I mean, I, I don't want to give too much away, but yes, she's. I'm, I'm hoping that fans of the, the series will, will see the title and think that it has something to do with Anna um, because she also uh, is in book four, the, the book before this one, uh, it's, it, briefly. So 
I'm hoping readers think that, yes, she's the lost child, but um, I, there's also, you know, Henrietta's lost child, um, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that um, Billy, the, the sort of um, Rose's um, mentally challenged brother, is also referred several times in the book as a, as a child or a lost child. So we have, you know, that whole um, definition there as well. It's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful analogy and one that really resonates. I want to, when we come back from the break, which we're going to right now, we're going to find out what happens to these people and whether the lost child is actually retrieved. So don't go away. We're on Dropping In with Michelle Cox, author of A Child Lost. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D. Dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. And we're back. Welcome. We're with Michelle Cox, author of A Child Lost, a historical novel with a murder mystery and a romance all woven in. It's Michelle, how do you do it? When you just casually mention, she's in the fourth book, uh, and and my head starts to ache. You've written all of these books, and it's amazing to understand that these characters must live somehow in your head, right? They, how is that to live with characters inside your head? It is really like they're real. And I've heard authors, you know, before I became an author, talk about this. And I thought it was a little bit fruity. And I, but it, it really does happen. I mean, it, when I was in the heart of writing this series, I have this um, big band, you know, playlist that I just play, you know, 
over and over and over for like three years. And um, one time I was driving in the car with the kids and I said, oh, you guys, you guys, this is Clive and Henrietta's favorite song. And they just looked at me like, mom, they're not real. Like, oh, yeah, oh, but they're they not. are. <laughs> well, we could forget, too, because they are so realistically drawn. Um, in case you're just joining us, Michelle Cox has an affinity for the 1930s, just as others of us have an affinity for you know, African joms, jazz from the Harlem. Uh, you know, there, there are a million kinds of little um, pinpoints where we are drawn to different epochs that are ones that we couldn't possibly have had any contact with unless, you know, we somehow right. are here as reincarnated. Um, yes, Henrietta and Clive, they must kind of endure or, you know, on a parallel universe uh, in your mind as, you know, as you're living your life. I think that um, they are compelling characters and uh, Henrietta is the is the protagonist, I believe, who really, you know, she also embodies this concept of a child loss. She has suffered a miscarriage. And in order to distract her from her woes and her sorrows, her husband, the inspector Clive, uh, always gallant, decides to try to divert them with um, a case, you know, a case that they are now developing their own private investigator firm. Nobody, what could be more fun than that? Um, but, you know, <laughs> through all of this, um, their, their, their antics, their adventures, and their inquiries, they, they stumble across some serious issues. They, they returned to a place called Dunning Asylum. And you just mentioned that you worked in an, in an elder care facility and you saw some of the neglect um, that goes on. And I see, you know, indicative of the time, I would think, um, you know, I, I did a little, you know, research even about what we were talking about before, daydreaming, seemingly an innocuous mm. thing, seemingly something that opens up our minds. But in those times, for example, if you were enlisted in the army and you answered the question, I like to daydream, they labeled you as a neurotic and they t- t- wow. wouldn't accept you. I mean, it was not, psychology wasn't well understood, right? Until after the 1940s and Freud and all of this. So in a similar vein, um, schizophrenia and epilepsy were not well understood. And Anna, mm-hmm. a child who um, remained with Gunther, and Elsie is Henrietta, the protagonist's younger sister, So she is diagnosed with schizophrenia, having only exhibited any any uh, epileptic symptoms. So you know, indicative of the times. Now, this is where I started to get really um, engaged. Is Anna's in a Kinderheim? So this is the German word for an orphanage, which is exactly the kind of place where I was in Germany um, in the first years of my life, where your parent, yes, your parent was still allowed to come. And in fact, if they, their financial straits improved, they might be able to take you home. They might not, and you might get adopted. Um, And so, of course, I was really riveted by these passages where Anna's put in the the Kinderheim because Gunther, who is her ward, 
um, or is her caretaker, um, he he has to work. So she goes to the Kinterheim, which is run by these very um, well-meaning and kind, knowledgeable people, which I do believe or want to believe mine was as well, or I, I actually know that for a fact now that I've gone back. Um, but wow. schizophrenia, yeah, it's a, but schizophrenia was mistaken then. She was put in the Dunning uh, home, which was a nightmare, right? I mean, this was just right. part of the 1930s. And how much did you draw on your experience um, in, in, you know, these kinds of homes to depict um, Dunning, which, if you'll um, inform readers, was uh, a real place? Yeah, Dunning, um, Dunning is, uh, it started out as a poor farm in the 1800s on the, um, in the outskirts of the city. It wasn't part of the city at that time. And so um, if you were poor, you went you went and lived there. Um, and as time went on, it became sort of, you know, a place to just drop, drop off mentally ill people, people who are crazy or schizophrenic or whatever, you know, term you wanted to use. And um, the conditions there were, were very, very terrible. Um, I I think I make uh, some notes at the end of the book that um, there was actually a train. It was called a crazy train and it ran from downtown Chicago and the Milwaukee Northwest uh, railroad line actually extended its tracks so that it went uh, almost all the way to the front door of Dunning. So, you know, the police or, you know, officials could just shove people into this train and then, you know, they would arrive at Dunning and, and be, and be put, you know, in in a ward or whatever it was, and there were horrific, horrific things that went on there, and it was a real struggle um, because I could have went very, very dark. Um, but this is a Clive and Henrietta novel, <laughs> so I couldn't. You know, I didn't want it to go that dark, um, so it was a real struggle for me to paint it accurately, uh, but not, you know be so dark, but on the other hand, I didn't want it to be, you know, like a Scooby-Doo mystery either. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was, it was not a, not a nice place. And shockingly, I, I only heard about this place when my oldest child did a high school history project on it. And this was many years back, many years ago. And ever since then, I've been very intrigued by this place. And, um, there, you know, it's it's of course torn down now, but they did uncover in the fifties, you know, mass mass graves of you know up to I think thirty thousand people. Yes. So a lot of atrocities, yeah, and the hosing and the electric shock, all of that really happened. And you point to mysterious demises. Um, you know that that the, many of these thirty thousand people didn't die of natural causes, which is even more creepy. Um, it's a place that I mean, you know, just kind of pulsates with like eeriness and uh, terror. Um, and and I think it's fascinating. Um, because it was part of my curiosity as to what sort of ignites the spark when you're ready to write, um, is it a place? Is it a character? Is it a combination of things? Is it an event? Um, you know, where do you draw most, uh, most richly your inspiration? I, I think um, really it's the, it comes first from the characters. And uh, 
I think that's indicative of my whole series is it's very character driven. Um, you know, some of the books have a little bit lighter mystery and, but it's not really, the series, yes, it's a mystery series, but it's not so much about the mystery. It's really more about these characters and how they are evolving, um, with every book. And so, um, that's where I start. And so then when I'm starting a new book, it's like, okay, it's just a continuation of the one before and the one before and the one before, which makes it a little bit easier. But now I have to figure out, okay, what big problem or what big case are they going to tackle this time? And it's usually formed from what's going on with them. So especially Elsie, who has a big role in these books. She she started out as just a side bit character. I never envisioned her to be, you know, getting equal playtime with Henrietta, but she does. Um, and so I needed to figure out, you know, who the mysterious Liesl was, who was this Anna in, in Gunther's life. And this is what came to me. So then well, I start it- researching and go from there. Yeah. Well, it's 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 fascinating, and I think all really good books, um, as a lost child is, uh, begin with character, and these characters, um, you know, have a heartbeat. Uh, you have the character of Henrietta; she chafes at the bit uh, in her traditional role with her husband, um, yet she keeps a lot of that together in her head in an interior dialogue and she offers him quite a lot of support. She is very kind um, to him when they go to Dunning and he is triggered to his uh, World War um, PTSD uh, anxiety attacks right there in the hallway. He's sweating and and he can't quite get his mind clear and, and she sees it. Um, she's a very complex character, and I think she's a very winning character, one where I really felt taking this imaginary trip into their lives was instructive for me. Uh, They provided a very kind of grounded, um, well-balanced role model, if you will, for what a marriage actually looks like. Yeah, there's there are these, um, it's not black and white, you know, there's the... the, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's the there's the woman with her own mind, but she is part of a partnership, and they are synchronized, and it is um, you know they're they're in symmetry with one another. So it's really it's really quite a touching relationship, I think, that they have. He's also recovering mm-hmm. from um, you know having lost his his first wife, and you know there's just a lot that make them perhaps a little bit more raw, um, a little bit more vulnerable to one another. And Henrietta has lost her, her dear father as well. Um, I, I, I sometimes when we read a book, we're, we're here now on our virtual book tour, so we get to talk a little bit about the writing um, as well. Um, and sometimes when we read a book that flows as easily as does A Child Lost, we have this thought that comes into our head, oh, I could write that. And, you know, clearly this is because it seems so deceptively simple, but it's not. Um, And when I thought about the reasons that I really appreciated reading this book, one of them was that there are so many strands to the plot. There are very, there are very many 
uh, interesting stories being woven at one time. There's the personal abuse of Rose and her disadvantaged brother, Billy. There's Elsie and Anna and Ginther and this budding sort of intriguing romance. There's, of course, Henrietta and Clive. And, you know, there's Dunning. There's this central, also Dunning, the institution becomes kind of a character. I wondered, do you develop plots, um, you know, does your does your working space, your writing space have, you know, timelines all over the wall? I mean, how does this actually <laughs> happen for you? How do you keep all this straight? Uh, <laughs> that is such a great question. Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I have... Each book has a notebook, um, and I sort of, that's where I write out the basic outline and, and, and try to keep notes. Um, sometimes I will have to go back and do a search for what, you know, what colors Elsie's eyes, I forget. And there was one point with one of the books, I don't know, maybe it was book three, we were in the final edits, and I sent this frantic email um, to my project manager saying, oh, my gosh. I mean, because I basically already signed off on the book. And I said, oh, my gosh, uh, can we make one more change? I, it, it actually was an eye color issue where I had put the wrong eye color in. And my project manager said, don't you have a big chart of all of these details? <laughs> Sorry, but I really should, but I just never have time to, you know, take that time out and make this giant chart. So, yeah, a lot of it's just memory or just doing searches through the manuscript. Well, they're very real characters. Right. I mean, and that's also, you know, the thing in Shell is like, that's a separate skill set, right? If you're living and inhabiting a character, as you write, that's a different skill set than taking out a chart and (laughs) writing down uh, data. It's it's a completely yeah. different kind of process, right? It is. And I feel like um, people who are good at one sometimes aren't good at the other. And there, I actually, um, I've met people who have given me their card, you know, at a conference or whatever, to say that they are people that actually do that for authors. I'm like, wow, oh. who knew? <laughs> they create charts us. and, yeah, they keep the... Not just you know your your social media calendar or your events, but they're they're actually keeping track of you know all of the data in in your books. You know the who drives what car, who you know what time of the year it is, all of that kind of stuff. So, okay, that's really scary. (laughs) That's really scary. To, be good, know, to get caught I, up. I mean, but, you know, look, it's another, it's a cottage industry. Look, this is, it's a gig. It's another gig. <laughs> a gig sure, uh, exactly. So good. Um, we have about a minute left in this segment. I, I just wanted to ask you, you know, this is a wild, you have a real following, right? There is a real following. How big is it? I mean, how many countries are you published in? How many people are following Henrietta and Clive? You know, that's a great question. Um, I know that I I do have fans in other countries. Um, occasionally, I will get emails. Um, mostly the you know, of course, the English speaking countries. So England, the UK, um, Australia, New Zealand. Um, but I've also you know, I've also seen a, a France, Germany, that type of thing. I know that I'm in. A lot of international libraries, a lot of libraries across the U.S. Um, it seems like it's a, a following that, you know, just keeps 
growing and growing. Um, so well, it's, that's amazing. Um, yeah. It must be very gratifying. It's a kind of a, you created kind of a classic, a cult classic. Uh, I would urge everyone to yeah. read A Child Lost. And even if you've not read the predecessors, as I have not, now I'm hooked. It's an addictive um, <laughs> form. It's a, an addictive form of escape because it's informed. It's thinking. It's the thinking person's escape. When we come back, we're going to take a break right now. But when we come back, we're going to we're going to look at the interior, the Downton Abbey aspect of a child lost, and uh, and really uh, immerse ourselves in their world. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Don't go away. We'll be right back on dropping in with Michelle Cox. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here chatting with Michelle Cox, author of A Child Lost. And it's an extraordinary book, a study in contrast. We have the deportation train to dunning the Institute of Everyone's Nightmares, the Horrors of Neglect and Abuse. And then on the other side is the mm-hmm. quintessential paradox that Clive and Henrietta live in the home of Clive's parents and his father is deceased. So now the matriarch is Antonia and she has given Clive and Henrietta 
one wing of the house. So, <laughs> well, that might not be much to some. I can tell you it's palatial. And um, when you're in the interior of this book and reading its passages, you can only imagine the grandeur of this place. There's chauffeurs, there's cooks, there's butlers, there's private servants. And, you know, given the proclivities of Henrietta and Clive and how, like, sexual they are, um, you know, their private mm-hmm. moments they're few and far between. They have to watch the door, you know. When and Henrietta, <laughs> thank goodness. Um, I'm so glad that you depicted a woman who has sexual appetites. She's quite. She's quite a vixen, that one. And she, you know, they. But they. But but they live. They live among servants, right? They are dressing. They are just like Downton Abbey. They're being buttoned up. Uh, as they're having these intimate conversations. I mean, what do you really, what, what, how, what do you make of that? What do you think that really would be like, uh, to, Michelle? You know, it's a great question. I don't know, because we all fantasize about it, right? Like how wonderful that would be. And I think a lot of people love the books because of that, because they can get lost in that world and, and just watch it unfold and like, a, you're, you know, you're watching a period drama or something. And I do think I've tried to depict it in what I imagine it to be wonderful in a lot of ways, but also very limiting. And just like any other situation in life or any other um, social strata, it, they have this luxury, but they are... Um, constrained as well, not only just by the servants, but what's expected of them. And that comes across very much um, through, as you mentioned, Clive's mother, Antonia, who wants to hold them to a very strict standard. Mm-hmm. So there's only so much they can do. And that's one of the things in book three, where they are on their honeymoon in England. And that's one of the things that um, Henrietta is very wistful about that they can't just it, there's a scene where they end up in a little pub they're searching for somebody and she wishes that this could just be their life and the right. same with book two she goes and stays at Highbury and um, this is a huge culture shock for her and this is she's kind of upset about it and that's not I don't I don't think that's the expected reaction who she comes from extreme poverty who wouldn't want to be transported and be the Cinderella but for her it's you know she feels a little bit tricked by Clive you know she wasn't signing on for this she Mm -hmm. was thinking they were just going to have this level life in in Chicago and now she's expected to be lady of the manor so book two is all about her you know, befriending the servants and doing all these not 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 naughty things. She's not like a naughty child, but she has an affinity to the servants because that's that's those people are closer to her, and she's always getting into trouble, and it leads to a mystery, and you know all of that. So. Sorry, it was a long answer. No, no, not at all. I I appreciate it, the the depth of it. You know, she relates to the servants, and also she wants to empower the servants. She's trying to get her her servant um, to to become more of a secretary. She's she's trying to broaden the horizon, and it's really interesting to me because, of course, we fantasize that 
or I don't personally because I, I because I'm an enormously private person. But you know the concept of yeah, I don't have to do the laundry. You know there there are moments where I think all of us would think you know, and also there was a certain nobility to these roles, as you say. You know, a butler would no more think of joining in tea that he serves than you know taking a trip to the moon because that's just simply not the role. The role is to be unobtrusive and of service and be of help. And, you know, I think that there is this wistfulness. It's very palpable in Henrietta, this wistfulness of a loss, uh, of spontaneity, um, of different sorts, um, even of thinking, um, that is characterized by the encumbrance of having people, yes, around all of the time, not to mention, you know, the concept that a person should be in servitude to another all of these are relics, you know, from a past that, you know, we've shed. And, you know, certainly on Juneteenth, we've, we've shed it. Um, but, but, it's a, but it's a very complex, it's a complex situation. And I do, I do have to say, I do enjoy the journey of going back um, and feeling her ambivalence and her misgivings about it. Also, the lack, there's an echo all the time. You know, Clive checks in about her whereabouts through the chauffeur Mm -hmm. um you know and you know like this you know fritz is got and fritz is kind of giving all the details of where she's been and i think to myself oh my god if i had to really think about you know my my husband or partner knowing this through a third party there would be something frankly unnerving about that um i think for sure yeah, I mean, but yeah. she, she, yes, I mean, she executes this, though, with complete grace and aplomb, I must say. She she tries to bring them forward. Exactly, yeah. And my, when my mom read that part about, you know, um, the fact that, you know, Clive all along has had Fritz basically following her, he, she was so angry. Oh, good. <laughs> I said, Mom, you know, yeah, it does. I don't think that that's beyond the scope of reality for that for that situation. Yeah. And it is an interesting concept about this whole sort of uh, servant class. And book three really um, sort of addresses that because because they do go to Clive's you know family estate in England, and Henrietta observes that uh, the servants there are are different than the servants at Highbury and even more reserved and, and reticent and, you know, in the shadows. And so she talks about that. And one of the themes of the book is that, you know, this, this estate in England is crumbling and the heir is, you know, a suspicious character and he doesn't want anything to do with this. And he wants to sell the estate and turn it into a, you know, a home for soldiers and all of this sort of thing. So he's mm-hmm. very much wanting to move into uh, a new century. And um, Clive and Uncle are, are just desperately holding on to the past. So it's a, it, I think that it's an interesting look, deeper look into that whole theme. Absolutely. And recalls... Harry and Meghan, um, you know, here's Prince Harry, you know, out in L.A., um, you know, introducing yes. himself as Harry. I mean, because how absurd is it to be Prince Harry in this day and age? I'm sorry, there's there's a lot of merit, you know, and, and he, I think, 
also had this sympathy towards soldiers, those who protect our country and go to wars, uh, wage battles for us, for, you know, protecting us. He developed the Invictus Games, uh, Harry. And, you know, and I I suspect that, you know, this mechanism of, of marrying Meghan Markle, that was a fairly deliberate, calculated way out, you know, of, you know, just this very thing that you're talking about, the, the, the walls having ears, there being echo chambers to everything, and just incredible expectations of formality that may or may not have a place in this world. Um, you do present it extremely grac- graciously and gracefully in A Child Lost. I don't want to, um, I, I want to just capture the absolute immersion of that book and one that will draw me to the others as well. There's, it's provocative. It asks these questions. And as you say, you know, you've been thinking about these things as you've been writing. You didn't just sort of dash it off with like an acceptance of, well, this is how it is. This is how it's going to be. And we're not going to question it. We're just going to go with the fluff. No, you've, you've delved deeper and congratulations to you, Michelle Cox. Thank um, you. When when do we get to see the sequel then? And because we know there's one where Clive's going back to Madame Pavlovsky. When do we see a sequel to this? And that's a great question. Um, Yeah, my first five books were published with She Writes Press. And so I'm... I'm I'm taking... I took a little bit of a break because normally by the time... um, a, a book in the series is published. I already have the next book written, but I took a break to write a different novel, also set in the 30s in Chicago, also based on a true person, but um, more of a um, more of a just a straight up historical fiction. And I am just finishing the last edits up for that one, and I am currently shopping that one with agents. So we'll see where that goes. And then as soon as I can get that one out the door, I will uh, start writing six. I have outlined it, but um, but I'm a pretty fast writer. I wrote um, A Child Lost, the first draft, in three months. So hopefully it won't take me too long, fans. (laughs) Hang in there. Right. The fan base, we're we're expecting now. Um, I do think that there's this paradoxical quality to your book, which your books, which has just an incredible allure for me because um, it's intellectual as well as emotional. You you kind of write an expose at the same time that you're – upholding a kind of lifestyle that is um, fascinating to many of us. And you also draw from the political to, I would say, the personal, because at the end of the day, I found um, in A Child Lost that the compassion of individuals, Henrietta has the compassion for those in Dunning, the asylum, and Clive also, likewise, has compassion for the, the, his board of directors is proposing they shut down a factory. He says, no, what about the employees and their families? And, you know, the, the home for children and the way that tugs on our heartstrings at a time now when we're experiencing a lot of poverty across America and may even see, again, kinds of uh, the bohemian home kind of situation. 
We've got a couple minutes left, but I, I do wonder, for me, compassion was the takeaway. Mrs. Hennessy gives work to Rose and Billy, and there's, you know, Elsie taking in Anna. We don't want to do too many spoiler alerts, but cash, compassion does save the day. Is that your fondest wish as a takeaway from this book? We have very short on time. Yeah, I really, I, I would say that, and it, it, you're, you're such an astute reader, and yes, I do feel like um, compassion is an overriding theme, and that's that's true in the world. I find, you know, there's good and bad people. There's good and bad in everybody. Yes. So, um, yeah, I would agree. Well, thank you for that. I unfortunately we're at the last moment together with Michelle mm-hmm. Cox. Um, I know that, and and is but a child of air that lingers in the garden. There, you're from Robert Louis Stevenson. You quote a child's mm-hmm. garden of verses. So, thank you for this escape and this reverie. We've enjoyed it immensely, Michelle. And you can find her at oh, michellecoxauthor.com wherever books are sold. On this June 19th, lift up those whose rights are still threatened every day. Be safe, be well, and as always, thank you for listening to Dropping In. Thank you so much for Dropping In. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 